0: Hi everyone, this is Elise Chenier, Director
1: of the Archives of Lesbian Oral Testimony. Thanks for tuning in. I wanted to let you know that you can find and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you like what you hear, consider throwing us some stars.
0: It really helps us get the word out about the archives. And if you like what we're doing and have some loose change, think about becoming a financial backer. We're here to serve the community, and to keep doing
1: that, we're going to need a little help. If you can play that role, please get in touch with me by email at e. C H E N I E R at SFU.ca.
0: Thanks, everyone. I'm Kelly Hitchcock, and you're listening to the Lesbian Testimony Podcast, a project for the Archives of Lesbian Oral Testimony at a lotarchives.org, which is an online, trans inclusive, open access archive for oral testimony of same sex or same desiring women, including lesbian, queer, and two spirit people. Each week, we'll talk to a donor from the archives about one of their donations or an oral historian about their recent work. Today we're here with Rose Norman and she is the editor of the Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist History Project, which puts on the annual women rights conference spelled W-O-M-O-N and writes W-R-I-T-E-S. So great play on words, and they produce and collect these Southern lesbian writers' stories. The Project Collective came out of the women's movement of the 60s, and it's in its 39th year of operation. Her academic research focused on American women's autobiography, and she's now a retired professor of English and women's studies. So, hello, Rose. Hi.
1: I do need to mention right off that we don't just collect stories of Southern women writers. We're collecting Southern lesbian feminist activists. Okay. whether they're writers or not.
0: So producing Southern feminist right. lesbian activist writing. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, we
1: really worked hard to, to come up with a good acronym, but we never did. So we're stuck with a very long name.
0: Yeah, it gets all of it in there, though. So that's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about this project and how you became involved with the Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist Herstory Project? Well,
1: Woman Rights is the Southeast Lesbian Writers Conference is something that I'm very involved with. I've been attending since 1997, although it's been going and there are people who have been attending since the first one in 1979, always at the same state park in Georgia. And since about 2009, that's the date I've got in my notes, we started having workshops about how the stories of Lesbian feminist activism in the South. We're not being told a lot of feminist memoirs are coming out about the movement and so on. Southerners are just not represented. It's like you know they talk about the flyover, of the Midwest, you know, that it goes between the two coasts, and it's not only that we're ignored, but that the South is often demonized as well, and um, Southern women especially are portrayed as you know ignorant and slow and shallow and <laughs> things like that. So we decided we'd start. I'll start collecting the stories and showing a different picture.
0: Okay. So did the women's rights group happen first or was the Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist History Project first?
1: Oh, woman rights was first. You know, the writers at women rights write all kinds of things. And we're a participant led writers conference. We don't pay anybody except the cooks and the childcare worker. So everything in this conference is done by participants. And that includes coming up with workshops. We have readings every afternoon and evening and you sign up and you're only supposed to sign up for one reading slot and uh, we get all kinds of writing but from that and just from knowing each other and so many of these people had been coming you know for many many years they know each other unlike you know many conferences where you know there would be a lot of people we might have a 100 people at the camp so you know everybody and you've listened to their stories so you know their story too which is often not what you would get from the appearance. One thing I've really learned from woman rights is the outside and the inside often don't match at all. And that must be partly because of you know, lesbian identity and the the difficulty of being lesbian in the South, or being feminist for that matter, but, you know, of having to navigate those waters. There's many, many activists, many, many activists of all kinds uh, attend Women Rights. Meryl Mushroom is the one that we credit. She's one of our founding mothers. She was not at the first Women Rights, but she was at the second Women Rights and has not mentioned one in the spring. We have it twice a year now. But she's not missed one in the spring or May since 1980. So she's the one who kept saying, we've got to do something about this. We've got people to write their stories, get them to write their stories. That's hard to do, even though even the writers, because writing about their lives is, of course, something people do. But we have many people who write about their lives at woman rights. But getting them to write to order like, like this, we weren't getting anywhere with that. And that's when we started interviewing people. We found that they would tell their story and then we could edit it and turn it into what well, we would edit it for archiving and so that they could get it correct and then publish excerpts from it. All of this just sort of grew out of uh, our sitting at workshops talking about this needed to be done.
0: Right. And it's so cool because not only are you fostering a lot of creativity with the women's rights, but then you're also getting to do a lot of oral history, it sounds like, with your interviews. Exactly
1: exactly and we weren't really that wasn't what we thought it was going to be we thought we will just put out a call for contributors and lc and OLOC, O lesbians organizing for change we had members of that we publicized it and asked people to send us their stories and now we basically explained what we were trying to do document the southern lesbian feminist activism that was going on and we got like two short pieces and even the members of our group many of whom were very active. Corky Culver is a very active member of our group and an avid writer, mostly a poet, but she did all manner of things in Gainesville, Florida, which was a hotbed of lesbian feminist activism from the 60s on. She didn't turn anything in, but I went down there to Gainesville and interviewed her, and I've got, you know, lots and lots of stories. She's had a story in every one of the special issues. Eventually, we developed a relationship with Sinister Wisdom and started editing our stories for publication. And Corky has so many stories that something of hers turns up in every one.
0: Yeah, I actually spoke to Julie Enzer of Sinister Wisdom is actually how I got connected with you guys. Can you describe how that relationship has sort of unfolded? Well, this is
1: where Woman Rights comes in. I mean, we started this in 2009. It was talk, 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 talk. Make plans, do nothing, nothing happens, not sure how it's going to do. You know, we did the call for contributors. That was a flop. It must have been the fall of 2011. Barbara Esther, who's one of the people, said to me, Have you contacted Sinister Wisdom to see if they'd be interested in any of this? And I hadn't even thought about it. I'm a subscriber, but it didn't occur to me that a journal might want to do a special issue with our material. So I got on the email right there and then, and she responded that day. And, well, we found out pretty quickly that we had way too much material for one special issue. But uh, we found out that we worked very well with Julie. She's a wonderful editor, and that magazine is just a perfect outlet for putting in print. So many of the people whose stories we're telling are old now. (laughs) I mean, I'm 67. Uh, I've interviewed lots of people much older than that. And they're not particularly into things like podcasts, but they like a book that they can pick up and hold. So we had a push toward toward getting it in print somehow or other. And Sister Wisdom has just been the best possible. But subscribers, of course, are the kind of people who would want to read this material.
0: Yeah. And I read a few of the journals as well. They're very varied and there's different themes. And I don't know, it was really exciting to read all of them. I'm really into storytelling. Obviously, that's probably why I have this job. But first, my question is, do you have to be Southern to join Women Rights? No, no, no,
1: no. Well, Woman Rights, it's the Southeastern Lesbian Writers Conference. But no, people come from all over. And for our project, our Hertford project, we're trying to document lesbian feminist activism in the South. So If you did something in the South, like Michelle Crone was one of the producers of Rhythm Fest, which ran for six times in the South, the Women's Music Festival. And I interviewed Michelle Crone, even though she's a northerner. I also interviewed Robin Tyler, who was the producer of the Southern Women's Music and Comedy Festival for six years in the South. She was born in Canada and lives in California. But mostly what we're doing or we're trying to do is the untold stories, Robin Tyler's sort of famous in lesbian circles, and so is Michelle. But we're trying to dig up the people that you don't know about. Like, for example, we found Richmond Lesbian Feminist. Richmond, Virginia has a lesbian feminist organization that celebrated its 40th year in 2015. They haven't been, you know, as robust in some of those years as in others, but still, that's the only one that I even know of. I'm sure that there's others somewhere, but it's the only one I found in the South. And, you know, we just had to start trying to reach out beyond the, the people we happen to know at Woman Rights. When you talk to a historian, and we are not historians in the trained sense. We come from all kinds of backgrounds. I'm trained in literature, and, you know, I studied literary autobiography, and I taught technical writing. You know, So I, I've done a lot of things that weren't history. Or herstory. We like to call it herstory for the same reason that Joan Nestle did. Of course. The, for political rather than linguistic reasons.
0: Yeah. So what do you find different about the women's stories from the South versus the more urban-centered lesbian stories? At the Women's Rights Conference? hmm Right.
1: You know, the South isn't very urban in general. And one thing I've noticed is that places like Atlanta... And, you know, the larger cities are more likely to have, you know, organizations. Richmond, Durham had the uh, triangle area, lesbian, feminist. But that is gone, long gone. And not well documented, surprisingly, because, you know, the research triangle area of North Carolina has been, you know, has had a lot of progressive activism, especially LGBTQ. Mandy Carter lives there. You know, she's very well-known lesbian feminist activist. But, you know, it doesn't seem to me to be urban rural like Birmingham, which is the biggest city in Alabama. And I'm from Alabama, but I've had a hard time finding people to interview and talk about lesbian feminist activism in the South. And Huntsville, where I live, is the third largest city in the state and very high tech and nothing like the South I grew up in, which was rural and poor and racist. I mean, of course, everybody's racist in Alabama. But well, that's an exaggeration. No, it's funny. It is Alabama. Yeah, it's the hotbed of Uh, that stuff. Yeah. Right. I mean, we do have two historically black universities in this town. And we have Also, the university where I taught, which was University of Alabama in Huntsville, which was focusing on engineering and science. And they have tons of international professors and students, you know, from many countries. The French teacher in the college I taught in is African and is the father of that woman who recently wrote Homecoming, that wonderful book just recently got a lot of press. But anyways, it's a fairly cosmopolitan area. And, you know, I found one person I finally interviewed two people here. One of them, who is from Birmingham, I interviewed Sylvia Toffel about her life in dance. You know, dance is a form of cultural activism. And then Felicia Fontaine, who was a very interesting activist, trained as an MCC minister, also a social worker. She finally has written a story about. Alabama activism. Well, the Southern women's music and comedy festival was happening on the weekend that we needed somebody to go do an action somewhere in Alabama. Felicia got drafted and then wound up being state president of now and led them to figure out how to convince our then-Senator Howell Heflin, who was on the Justice Committee, the one that vets Supreme Court justices, they got him to vote against Bork, who was you know, a very right-wing nominee, who got defeated primarily because somebody really influential like Howell Heflin changed his vote. But that was the kind of story I got. I didn't get the story about the Domestic Violence Center or the Rape Crisis Center or the Lesbian organization. There was none of that.
0: Yeah, I guess it's not about rural versus urban. It's more kind of like southern culture versus non-southern culture. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I'm really not sure what it is. Now, there's Birmingham did have a lesbian production company that raised money to bring in Holly Neer and other singers like that. And then Huntsville had people who just independently formed little production companies and brought Holly Neer here or Lucy Blue Tremblay things like that. That's a form of activism. And you could, there's so much more in a city as opposed to, I mean, we have people who come to Woman Rights who don't know any lesbians where they live. And that's one reason they will drive hundreds of miles to woman Rights. There's not that many places you can go anymore and be around lesbians for a week.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a huge resource for them, right? True. You've also done a lot of your own research in terms of interviewing lesbian women. Did you have any interesting findings that stuck out to you during those interviews? I'm just amazed at how much I didn't know. Like those Richmond lesbian feminists, I didn't know anything
1: about that. And I didn't come out until I was 40. So a lot of the period that we're covering, which is about 1970 to 99, I came out in 1990, (laughs) so I missed a lot of it. And it was invisible to me. You know, the whole lesbian culture, completely invisible to me. Turned out half my friends were lesbians, didn't know it. You know, it's just in the South and at my university, even after I came out, I never came out publicly at the university. But I think most people knew, you know, I just knew. It just wasn't talked about. Maybe it's a Southern thing that you talk about it with your friends. I never see any of my colleagues from the English department, ever. I never socialized with them except in parties that I had to go to or, you know, I thought I should go to. But I have many, many lesbian friends. We have a large lesbian community. So it's like you have this sort of, I don't know, it's not so much an underculture anymore. as just a parallel universe.
0: Right. I talked to somebody who was saying that they had found research in Mississippi before the 60s, and they showed that there was actually a tolerance for gay liaisons, I guess, as long as Mm -hmm. they were not extramarital, and that they were like within the same race or something. So it's still kind of Mm. not a real tolerance. But there seemed to be sort of like a place for people to do that without getting bothered before the 60s. So I don't know. Does that resonate at all? I don't know.
1: I've heard that said, even today, that I'm thinking about, you know, just people in my small rural hometown who were obviously gay, but were not you know ostracized for it i don't know that south has a lot of tolerance for eccentricity i mean i think it's treated as eccentricity rather than you know as a normal lifestyle as long as it doesn't involve race i think the south has an amazing amount of tolerance for people not being just like everybody else
0: very interesting yeah that seems to strike a chord for sure Do you have a tip for someone looking to do interviews for oral history? Well, I listened to what Joan Neffler had to
1: say about that, and I liked her comments. You know, I think she was one who said your phone is a perfectly good recording device. My biggest tip is to try to get them talking and not say too much. You know, as an interviewer, I like to try to get them off on something where they'll forget that they're being recorded and just start telling you about what they're doing or what they did. Especially people in their 60s and 70s really enjoy remembering some of those days when they were having a lot of fun doing a lot of important things. But it was fun That for most of them. I'm thinking they like to talk about it. In some cases, Mississippi is one of the areas that we haven't gotten as much from as we would like. I did interview Garnett Harrison, who is a lawyer and did some really significant activism in Mississippi, and it's in the first issue that we did. But she was just barred in the state. She had to leave the state for fear of her life. And she grew up in Hattiesburg, which is where SNCC and all the civil rights activism was. So it's not as though, you know, she was in an area that had activism. But boy, it made me think that it might not be safe to do too much activism publicly in Mississippi. And maybe that's why I'm not getting Mississippi stories.
0: So she had to flee Mississippi 30 years ago or now?
1: No, in the 80s.
0: Oh, in the 80s. Okay. It was in the
1: 80s, yeah which doesn't seem that long ago to me. But, yeah, that's a uh, little yeah, it,
0: it, it, too close to home, hey? Mm-hmm. She was defending women, straight women,
1: who had accused their ex-husbands of molesting their children that they had shared custody with, and the judges were were giving the custody to the men, to the molesters.
0: Oh, my God. And um,
1: I know, it's horrible. Garnet herself had lost her daughter, to her ex-husband on the basis of her being lesbian. And she was very out. So, you know, it was a, a very difficult story. It got national attention. It was on Oprah, um, Larry King, you know, all that sort of thing. But, you know, it's sort of the stereotypical Mississippi burning kind of thing. And she was a native. She was a native of Mississippi. She wasn't some outside agitator. She had grown up there and, you know, thought that she was doing the right thing. But her conclusion was that she let her activism become, that as a lawyer, she could not let activism affect what she did. And uh, I don't think she thought she did anything that she should have been disbarred for, but they sure disbarred her.
0: So disbarred her from being a lawyer?
1: In Mississippi, Oh my Fortunately, god! Fortunately, she had yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, she is um, a lawyer in Georgia now. She lives in Florida and practices in Georgia.
0: Okay, so she was like, trying to help had, people that were trying to get their kids back. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: She was doing family law, and mostly that had to do with you know child custody and you know things to do with with children.
0: So they disbarred her family. for what reason or on what grounds? Of their grounds. It was written up and fairly well
1: documented. I
0: did a lot of reading about it.
1: I can't remember exactly what they said she had done. One of the women that she defended went into hiding with her child. Maybe both of them did. I think they both did. And maybe she was accused of having been complicit in that in some way that was not right. And one of the women turned on her, came out of hiding, made a plea bargain. And I don't know exactly what she did, but it was, you know, when a client turns on you, that's not good.
0: Wow. This is devastating. Yeah. So it would be hard to find people to talk to in Mississippi because people are so afraid of their getting persecuted, I guess.
1: I don't know whether that's just Mississippi. Well, in general. Maybe it's more rural than other southern states. Maybe it's the most rural. The biggest city is Jackson, which is the capital, and it's not very big as, uh, as cities go. So, you know, it just may be that there's more violence or... You know, it's just more dangerous to be an activist. I mean, you know, a lot of people got killed in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. So it's definitely got a violent history.
0: Well, I think it's wonderful that you're trying to collect all of these narratives and create a conversation around these issues in the south because it's obviously still necessary and needs to be said i kind of want to come to the conference to be honest i want to come to women's rights (laughs) oh wonderful i hope you will okay are you in canada or california i'm in canada but i'm moving soon so back to the us Mm
1: -hmm. we have several canadians who come who well one was originally lived here in huntsville another one lived in Gainesville, and they're now, well, anyway, we have Canadians
0: at <laughs> Woman Rights. Okay. I am actually American, but I have been here for a while, so I'll mm-hmm. be Canadian if you want me to be Canadian.
1: <laughs> oh, that's okay. You can talk Canada with some of them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, we'll discuss health care and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for today, but I had such a lovely time speaking with you and thank you for speaking with us. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. If you guys were inspired, you should go to allotarchives.org and look into the Bridging the Gap project where you can do interviews yourself. Funding for this project is provided by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada a federal research funding agency that promotes and supports post-secondary-based research and research training in the humanities and social sciences.